Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Uh, this week's kind of a Book Shambles slash Film Shambles episode as Robin and Josie are in the studio with author and one of the UK's, if not the world's most respected film critics, Mark Kermode. We did an extra long episode with Mark. He arrived at the studio a little bit early, so we thought we would jump straight in the studio and just record for ages. So if you're a Patreon supporter... Firstly, thank you very much. Uh, But also you've got a super long 75-minute extended edition of this episode waiting for you on your secret Patreon feed this week. If you would like to hear that, you can by becoming a Patreon supporter of Book Shambles at patreon.com slash bookshambles. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you get extended editions of Book Shambles each and every week, including almost an entire extra half an hour of this episode where you can hear about uh, the future of DVD. DVD audio commentaries and uh, reviews that Mark now feels he might have got wrong, tales of an obscure French Jeff Goldblum film and lots of other stuff as well. So patreon.com slash bookshambles to pledge your support. Book Shambles, the Cosmic Shambles Network, our blog network, documentaries, all the stuff that we do, uh, that doesn't exist without your support on Patreon. So if you like what we do and want to support it, that is the best place to do that. A reminder about uh, some live book shambles we've got coming up or live book shambles and a live sea shambles. Sea shambles? That's at the Albert Hall. You should get tickets for that as well. But what I meant to say at this point in the podcast was science shambles. Uh, The book shambles and science shambles podcast we're recording live episodes at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich in March and April Robin will be co-hosting Book Shambles with Natalie Haynes. Uh, Her book, A Thousand Ships, is out now and seems very appropriate uh, to be doing at the Maritime Museum. They'll be joined by a special guest as well. And Science Shambles, hosted by Robin and Helen Chersky, as usual, with some special sea-based, marine-based guests as well. So go to the National Maritime Museum website or the Cosmic Shambles website for tickets for that I think that's probably uh, enough of me waffling for now, since it's already a very long episode for Patreon supporters, that is. Uh, So here is Robin and Josie and Mark. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles, and today it's also going to be something of a film shambles, but with the collection, uh, with the connection to books as well. Uh, we're joined by Mark Kermode, and uh, we're going to. T- well, we're going to. Uh, first of all, one of my favourite things, which is Mark, is a film critic that I trust, and that you're on quite a small list of people. And uh, I wrote about this in the big issue a while ago. You did. Is, I was very pleased. Thank but, you very but much. I, the, I haven't thanked you in person before. Thank you. But it was, uh, and it was, you know, that column. I'm always genuine. I only pick on things that I like, and it was like Philip French. Dillis Powell, uh, I would say Derek Malcolm, there's certain people, and I think there's perhaps fewer now, I'm not going to try and get you, but, but no, no, sure. sometimes I notice in, in, in some of the mainstream press, they seem to employ, and this is true of theatre critics as well, lots of other things, people who've kind of got an opinion, but you don't get a sense that they love the world. 
I and mean, that's I, the thing that I get from you is that this, when you are disappointed with a film, it's like cinema's been let down. <laughs> Tim Roby once wrote, I, I wrote a book um, a, a while ago called The Good, The Bad and the Multiplex and Tim wrote a review of it in which he said, he said it was like it, that there was a section in it that was like somebody being really publicly disappointed with something that they loved, which I thought was a nice phrase to use. Philip French was obviously at the Observer before me, and Philip was the great, you know. I mean, I grew up uh, reading Philip's writing, and actually, one of the things was you'd read him, not least because of the because of the prose. Mm. You know, you'd read the way he wrote, and you'd go, oh, "I wish I could construct a sentence with that clarity." And he absolutely lived and breathed it. And um, I remember. When when it was announced that I was taking over him when he retired, he said this thing. He said, um, "He said, you know, it's the best chair in film journalism. Don't break it." <laughs> <laughs> and I also discovered this other thing, which is that it's a really good idea if you're going to take over from somebody, take over from somebody who's a bit rubbish. Don't take over from somebody who is generally regarded to be the very peak of their profession. Who, when they stood down, when Philip retired the week before I took over. There was an eight-page tribute in the Observer with everybody writing these brilliant tributes about how fantastic uh, Philip was, including Martin Scorsese, who used the word irreplaceable. Oh, <laughs> Follow that, you know. And it Harsh was like, early I know, exactly, really was like, okay, fine, never do that again. But it was it was the way he wrote. You know, you just he wrote. You could read it without even seeing the films and just like the like the way it was written. The um. Because I want to start off on some of the films that you uh, that are the kind of connection. Because I knew I could yeah. trust you for uh, three particular reasons. I would say Slade in Flame, Dougal yes. and the Blue Cat, yeah. and The Ninth Configuration. Yeah, and when I have to say, at least two of those are films that most people haven't seen. So you know, uh, it, how fantastic that you love them as much as I do. I mean, I you know, I absolutely love those films. And when you wrote that thing in the big issue, that was what you said. I was thinking, what's the, what are the chances of somebody else liking those movies as much as I did? But is it because we're of a, a very similar generation? I think there's only probably a couple of years between us. And when you grow How up, and you're, you? you're a film. I'm, I'm 50. Oh, no, I'm much older. I was born in 63. When were you born? Oh, I was born in 1969. So no, 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 was... I'm way older than you. Oh, OK. Yeah. I look a lot older, I love though. it. That's to me, I'm thing. like, that's you know? six years, guys. Patch it over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I, I look so... <laughs> but I, I, actually, I thought that because I remember reading something back about... I can't remember which particular film you went to in the cinema, and I thought, oh, I would have only been forced. So yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. that... For me, one of the things that I I think once you're enthusiastic about films and you only had, you know, three channels and BBC Two was showing a lot of stuff, you have foreign language yeah. stuff and you would find any film that was, you go through the Radio Times listings and you suddenly go, oh my God, get Carters on. I yeah. remember that being on Movie Drome, cut version. I wrote my first letter to the Radio Times when I was 17 years old because they cut things like there's that great moment where it goes, your eyes haven't changed, still piss holes in the snow. And they cut still piss holes in the snow and really? things like that. And so <laughs> things like Ninth Configuration, I pick up Starburst magazine and yeah. read John Brosnan's column, which is why, you know, uh, is, is it only a movie, your first uh, book? I can't remember. The... Uh, yeah, so it's only the movie, movie was, the, was the first one and then Good, the Bad, and the Multiplex was the second. So yeah, so that was the that was the one. That's why that's the one that begins with, you know, me going to see Slade in Flame and uh, Blazing Saddles at the Classic in Hendon and all that stuff. Because I've kind of you know that was that was the story that I've been telling the whole of my life. So I just kind of wanted to get it out of my system. <laughs> well, that's because what I get from the film from the book is is that moment where when we would wander around and films were hard to get hold of. So especially strange films as well. Like yeah. I remember when you mentioned a Razorhead, I still remember where I was 
when I first saw the poster for that. Oh, God, I was yeah, 10 yeah. years old. Hemel Hempstead, outside the town hall, was a poster for it. I was like, what is that? I don't uh, know. And I waited. It's the same with Pink Flamingos, the image of Divine yeah. in Pink Flamingos. I remember seeing that, again, waiting years until I saw it at the Scala. So yeah. I think part of that, once you're obsessed with film, and you had such a you know limited funnels in terms of films and filming, yeah. Starburst, things like that, that means that you would get led to the same cultish things, Silent Running being one of the examples in, yeah. in It's Only a Movie. Well, I mean, I, I remember really clearly that um, I used to get the tube to get to school, and when you're on tube trains back then, the, 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 the tubes had nothing but film posters on them, and they were a series of really iconic film posters, which was Exorcist, Taking a Pelham, One, Two, Three, those things. And you, as you went through tube stations, you would see hundreds and hundreds of the same thing, and, it would, and that was where your first experience of films was. Second was, you'd go to the cinema and you'd see the trailers, and quite often you would go to, to see the same film a couple of times to see the trailers in advance because this is before video. Video really starts happening early 1980s. So this is all the way through the 70s. You have to see things in the cinema. And I was lucky enough to have grown up near well, what used to be the Rex is now the Phoenix in East Finchley, which had late night Friday night screenings. And, uh, and you know, like the Scarlet, that was the place that I saw Pink Flamingos, Eraserhead, The Devils. And I remember I used to, there was a seat that I would always sit in. That was when I kind of began obsessing about always sitting in the same seat. And and so I can remember really clearly at least from that period, exactly which cinema I saw every single film in and what the poster was for the film that made me want to go and see it. So, I mean, I, you know, I remember going to see Blazing Saddles at the Classic in Hendon. I remember seeing Omen at the Barnet Odeon. I can even tell you which screen the Barnet Odeon it was. Mm. And, you know, it became a really big thing, the where and the when and the wherefore. Silent Running was really interesting because I was taken uptown, as we used to call it, because I grew up in Barnet. There was a friend of mine called um, Mark First, whose father um, is a musician, Anton First, a, a, comp- a conductor, I believe. And uh, I didn't know anything about this. We were like 10 years old. I just knew his father did something glamorous. And one day his father said to us, I'm going to take you both to the cinema. And he took us uptown. And I... You know, I don't think I'd ever been up to the West End other than going up Christmas shopping, you know, to go and look at the Selfridges windows or something. And we went into this huge, big uh, sort of Cinerama-style cinema. And as we arrived, there was the poster for Silent Running. The British poster for Silent Running is really striking. And I remember this really clearly. Mark and I looked at the poster. It had robots and space. We didn't even know it it was a science fiction film. And we looked at the poster and we looked at each other. We did that thing that kids would do. They give each other the thumbs up. This is going to be great. You know, this is space, you know, way. And then we went in and the supporting feature started. The supporting feature was a documentary about uh, people who did special effects and stunts, you know, which I've never seen before or since, but I can remember it really, really clearly. And then Silent Running started and I had, I, I was completely unprepared for it. I didn't know what kind of film it was. And then, of course, the minute it begins with that Joan Baez song and it's so melancholic and so heartbreaking. And then the film played out. And at the end, I was in floods of tears. Like, absolute... Fl- I mean, I loved it, but I was completely traumatised by it. And I went home, you know, they dropped me off back at our house because we lived quite near to each other. And I just went up into my room and I just remember just being... Like, I was in that world. And and, and then I wrote a novel of Silent Running. I got a typewriter and I novelised it. I did one of 2001 as well. But I, that is it's like a primal experience for me, seeing Silent Running at that age. And I knew nothing beforehand. And now, since then, I've written a book about it and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it, it, it was just 
Yeah, and that was it. I, I, you know, Krakatoa East of Java was the first time I thought I want to live in the cinema, and Silent Running was the thing that sealed the deal. I always love Krakatoa East of Java because th- there's a certain guy. There's a bit where, of course, the thing about Krakatoa East of Java is actually it's, it's west, west of Java. Java. It's like one of the first things that you learn about. I was just thinking of the Phoenix, which is I love as well. I I showed a double bill there a few years ago with Reese Shearsmith of Dead of Night, Dead of Night, and then Deathline. Deathline. I feel like we speak about Deathline once. A year, but that first experience of seeing it will never leave me. Mm. You know, and Jeremy is another film that I love. This, which I absolutely, you know, I. And so when you, when you, when I see those films, what I think of is the first time I saw them. And it'd be interesting to well, if I saw them for the first time now, what would I think? But I, I'm always thrown back to the first time I saw them. Well, also you can't change that. You can't change that you are a person experiencing these things, and you can't then yeah. look back and be like, I'll pretend I've never seen it, and I'll pretend I'm but not. You're the right. Person. That emotional impact. That's what I always think is interesting. Yeah, that that because there are certain cast iron films for me, like Lady Vanishes, Happiest Days of Your Lives, which was on yesterday again with Margaret Rutherford, Alice Sim, Robo, Talking Pictures TV. Yeah, I love which, Talking Pictures everybody's TV. Everybody's favorite channel. Yeah, this everybody's so favorite channel. That first First of all, I immediately like texting Mark Gatiss. There's a channel, there's a channel, right? And and then you watch these, they're not B pictures, they're they're films that are a half hour plot stretched out to 75 minutes to fill in the kind of quota thing. And they're fantastically dull. And a man comes home as his wife killed someone. Maybe she's under the floorboards. I don't know what's going on. Dragged out, dragged out, dragged out. You sit there all the way to the end. And then you do. Huge amounts of shoe leather. Huge amounts of people walking between. Yes. They've got the Dave Clark Five though the the the, the Borman movie catches if you catches can catches if you can it's, it's, oh, it's such a great but yeah cast iron movies Robocop Children of Men I think is oh, a cast yeah. iron movie Children That's of like... Men is my favourite film it's and it's film. so clever and so prescient and if you watch it now you will not be able to appreciate how prescient it is because you'll be like oh this is very realistic it's like oh it was made thirteen uh, think... years ago and it's so interesting there I is a terrifying thing isn't it when dystopian film. fantasy becomes documentary mm. and you're looking at things and going. You know, it's like RoboCop, you know, with all the kind of the adverts and everything. You go, well, that is like yeah. literally now. Can I um, can I just take this time to recommend a really great dystopian book I read? I've started reading again. I had a daughter 18 months ago and it's taken me, took me about 15 months. Thank you. Uh, it took me about 15 months to start reading again. And also I have to stop using her as an excuse for everything now, which is very depressing. But um, <laughs> I started reading, uh, I've read John Lanchester's The Wall and it's fantastic. It's about... Um, a near future dystopia where Britain has erected a continuous border wall around the entire coast, and about. Um, but it's also quite. When was it written? Uh, this year. Oh right, okay. Came right, out right. this year, perhaps last year. But it's. Um, it just is very uh, small and simple and affecting, and yeah. it's quite a naive love story in a way. But I loved it. I thought it reminded me a lot of like The Road, and it reminded me a little bit of Children of Men. And I, if you're into that sort of thing, I really recommend it. Came out this year. Do you, in fact, while we're on that, that's something I, I also wanted to talk about Vox Lux briefly, because yes, yes, yes. not enough people have seen Vox Lux. Have yeah. you seen Vox no, Lux? Of course, yeah. I've right. not I, seen I really loved that movie, and I know you had. And, and the reason I want to talk about it is just because I keep me. No one seems to have seen it. Could you it give me to, more context? It's basically it's one. Well, I saw it without any any knowledge of it. I was on a plane and I was just doing that thing, and I went, "Oh, I have no idea what this is. I've just watched Star Is Born. Let's watch this pop movie with Natalie Portman." Right? Oh, so, so it's so clicked. recent. Yeah, yeah. 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 So okay. while I was away, so I, I'd not known it had existed. No, this year. Yeah, this, this year, is May yeah, this yeah. year, and and so basically, uh, it starts off with a school shooting. 
And then the girl who survived uh, sings uh, a song that she's written at the memorial and becomes enormously famous. It has, I think, the best drunken pratfall I've ever seen (laughs) when Natalie Portman falls out of the hotel, which is beautifully done. But Willem (laughs) Dafoe doing, of course, his brilliant dry narration, very sparse. Scott Walker soundtrack (laughs) with Sia songs. uh, And I love the kind of... It it was one of those films, Mm. when you talk about you immediately love, from the moment it started, I went... Oh, this is one for me then, I think. Yeah. And I still had no idea what was going to go on, but just the way it looked and yeah. the way it sounded. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I played a lot of tracks from it on the Scarlet, because I do this show on Scarlet Radio, which is like a movie soundtrack show. And that combination of the Scott Walker and the City is actually really, really interesting. So I had played quite a lot of the score from it because I think the score is really fascinating. It's got that kind of weird broken back structure that it's it's almost like two parts. Because what then happens is that you then move forward and it's then what's then happened to this person who's become famous and a relationship with it. And it's a, it's a very, very adventurous and very, very strange film. I mean, I think there, I think it doesn't entirely work for me, but I think there are, I'd all, I come back to this all the time. I'd always rather see something aim high and fall than something just play it safe. And it, that funnily enough ties into ninth configuration, which I think is the perfect example of a film which is not afraid of falling flat on its Mm. face. When you think that's by the guy who won an Oscar for writing what was then the most successful film of all time... And he says, well, I'm going to do this thing about, you know, it's a, it's a bunch of people in a, in a psychiatric ward that happens to be in a gothic castle at the dog end of the Vietnam War. And you go, oh, really? <laughs> Off you go. Yeah. And I love that film. But one of the things I love about it is, it says, is, is if you try and explain it to people, it sounds like you're explaining one of those movies. Like It sounds like you're explaining a cult movie that could only ever be appreciated by a small audience. And then yet, there's a guy doing an all-dog version of Hamlet, but don't worry about that. <laughs> then we have a dream of the crucifixion that's somewhere near the moon. And there, but then, anyway, but, it's fine, but, it's fine. But the most brilliant thing is when he comes in and he says that thing, but, you know, he, he says he's adapting Shakespeare's works for dogs. And he says, well, it's a labour of love, God damn it, but somebody's got to do it. And then he walks... <laughs> Over and he says, Now I have a question. I'm casting Hamlet, and if I cast a great Dane, they'll accuse me of it, and then somebody cuts <laughs> in. And it's full of those kind of half finished sentences, which I, which is very well, all, At that point, you almost go, oh, At points, very briefly, it becomes duck soup. Yes, and then yes, it, yes. Goes, it yeah. becomes. It's but it's, if you haven't seen it, I really would highly, anyone out there, and you can get, well, you're actually on the commentary, aren't you? Yeah, I, I yeah. So Bill and it's, I did a commentary for Although that's a, a weird thing. We Just before we started, we were talking about commentary tracks and whether they'll continue to exist, you know, in an age in which everything's downloaded. That commentary for the the ninth configuration was actually done in Bill Blatty's house. Um, I was in Los Angeles. I was in Hollywood doing a documentary and a company over here called Blue Dolphin wanted to put it out. Nowadays, if you're going to do a, a commentary, you come into like we're in a studio now, nice studio. So we probably all sound kind of nice. Um, but uh, there wasn't any money. And I said, look, I love this film. And they said, we're going to put it out. I said, well, look, how about if I drive up to Santa Barbara to Bill's house and I take a little DAT recorder with me and we'll sit and we'll watch the film on his television. And here's the problem. The film, you know, American and British, they run at different speeds. Powell and thing run 24 frames, 25 frames, okay? So I did the commentary for Ninth Configuration with me and Bill Blatty sitting in his front room, watching it on the telly with the volume turned down and every 10 minutes having to stop for however many seconds in order to make the thing sync back up again, which was incidentally a calculation that I got wrong. And we then spent an awful lot of time trying to fix it in in the edit. And I still think it's one of the best commentaries I ever did because Bill talking about the Ninth Configuration is just a joy. And I'd done a... 
there's a, a an edited screenplay of it that I had done a commentary for the screen. We you know we spent a lot of time talking about the ninth configuration. I think actually one of the reasons that he and I got on well was that when we first met. I talked to him as much about the ninth configuration as I did about about Exorcist, and it was the thing he was really proud of because he was a comedy writer before. He wrote a shot in the dark. His first television appearance was with Groucho Marx. He was on the Groucho Marx show, You Bet Your Life. That's how he won his money that enabled him to write his first novel. So that Marx Brothers connection is actually very solid. Well, also, The Exorcist, I don't think it's funny, but you can tell, like, hearing that, you can tell it was written by someone who was... A funny person. Well, you know, it's odd? it's okay. It's it's a really weird observation, and it's it's very astute because the Exorcist does have funny dialogue in it, although it is not funny. Yeah. And one of the things that I that I love about it is it takes itself really seriously, mm-hmm. but it portrays characters like Father Dyer, who the, the whole Father Dyer kingdom and stuff. When there's you know the, the thing about you know I, you, I got tickets to the crest, you want to come? What's playing? You know, and he said you know Lucille Ball and blah blah. He said, I've seen it. all those kind of you know I lied. You look like Salminio. All that stuff is very very it's it's comic dialogue, but it's in the context of this story, which is not funny at all, and therefore it gets overlooked. It's like Manchester by the Sea. You know the bit in Manchester by the Sea where they're trying to get the guy into the... Is it the guy? They're trying to get someone to, into an ambulance. Right. And the two ambulance drivers just keep Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's about three or four bits in that film where it's... It's not there to be funny, but it's there to be like life is still comic and people still joke. Yeah. And to give it like a real sense of um, of like a richness of world, I think. Yeah. yeah, sort of inherent timing as well. Like that makes so much sense to me. Like dramatic time, like that it comes from comedy, like good dramatic timing, even if it is dramatic timing, you still get that same sense that you get when it's like good comic timing. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm always fascinated. We were talking in, in the podcast before about Todd Salonzi's happiness, mm-hmm. and and we mentioned RoboCop, and I, which I was very. I always one of my fond memories is watching the South Bank Review of the Year with Ken Russell, and uh, <laughs> when he gets Ken, what's your favourite film? And he, and he went RoboCop, and you can see Melvin Bragg go, Oh dear, is Ken doing one of his jokes? And it's like, <laughs> No, it's a bloody brilliant film, and he yeah. compares it to Metropolis and all that. But yeah. that is a film, as is Happiness, where depending on the audience you're sat with, because I've seen both of them more than once with an audience. Some scenes are funny and some aren't for different people. So the first time that I saw the scene in RoboCop where he gets, um, where Murphy gets shot, everyone was like, whoa, it felt really sickening. It's a horrible... And then the next time I saw it was after two undercover uh, army guys had been dragged out of a car during a, a funeral in Ireland. That was the front page news. Right. So again, watching that in the cinema was horrible. When I then saw it at the University Film Society, everyone laughed during that scene. They found it absurd. And I was like, I still don't find that funny. No, that is that is a weird reaction. I mean, I remember seeing that for the... I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of that film and I'm a fan of Verhoeven, but it's. I remember that the reason that 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 it works is because the nastiness is nasty enough mm. that you can that all the I mean of course the whole thing with Verhoeven anyway is it's like when people people saw Starship Troopers and didn't understand what it was doing with the kind of with the fascist imagery you know it's like how can you not see that this is what this is and uh, I remember the first time I saw Robocop thinking wow that is in the same way as when I first saw The Fly, the the, uh, the David Cronenberg, The Fly, thinking the nasty is really nasty, and that's why it works. It's not just, it's not just funny. I mean, you know, Ken's movie tastes were really 
I mean, I should say that you know, I, I knew Ken quite well. We became quite good friends, and I, you know, he, he um, uh, you know, we still miss him because he was he was an he, an enormous. Did you know him at all? Did you know? No, I was meant to interview him once, and then it had to get pulled, and then he died not the long yeah. after, afterwards. It was like one of those things where I have all manner of weird memorabilia, you know, things like oh look, so there's a letter inside this book of two unmade screenplays, you know, that one that came out. Go, yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love. I mean, what I find so fascinating about him is when you also talk about interesting failures. Is I think The Devils is a remarkable film. Um, I think so many other films of the 70s. I sat down and watched Tommy again. Which is just coming out in cinemas again. It's just being reissued as part of the BFI's musical season and is really worth seeing on the big screen because if you saw it when it first came out, the chances are you saw it mono. And it's it was always meant to have this kind of you know this big mix which you could only see in um, uh, in the West End. And when we we did some, some of Ken's stuff at the Shetland Film Festival, and we played it because again I did a commentary track for Tommy with with Ken um, for the Blu-ray release, I think it was, and we played it in Shetland in the original sound mix. And I mean, it is it was huge. So nowadays, because since cinemas now have really big sound systems, go if, it doesn't matter if you've seen Tommy on television, go see it in the cinema because it's just. It needs to be seen turned up to eleven because it's it's mad. Can I just say, somebody who was too young to have seen it in the cinema, and it never reached my parents, and so I, God, I still haven't seen it, which is remiss. But when I was a kid, somebody tried to explain it to me, and oh, yeah. I was like, "What? That's not work. Why is this? How is this a film? This can't make any sense." Sorry, I probably interrupted you in a previous podcast and I'm going to interrupt you again. Sea Shambles is on sale now, which is a follow-up to our Space Shambles show at the Royal Albert Hall that sold out in 2018 and in 2020 at the Royal Albert Hall we are going to be discussing all things that are the sea and myths and krakens or krakens and amongst others there will be Helen Chersky who's here at the moment. I am and I'm very glad everyone's getting excited about the ocean. It's long overdue. Yeah, it was going to be it's still 80% mystery so we don't don't know that that allows us to do lots of weird things. Helen's going to be there. Josie's going to be there. Steve Baxter's going to be there. Lem Cesar's going to be there. There are guest bands about to be announced soon. Anyway, that's enough of that merciless plugging. It's also one which for 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 my generation, I think, it's because I can see how you'd have missed it. It was the kind of film that was on every Christmas when you were ten years old, late night on BBC Two. So that and Man Who Fell to Earth, which of course now both yeah. of them I have a totally different appreciation of. They're utter madness to an eleven-year-old who's seen Star Wars and then watches Man Who Fell to Earth, or you know, then it is. And I think that's a great education. Again, yeah, that yeah. limited number of films that you could see meant you were confronted with things that were fucking weird. Um, I think generationally, for people. My age and up to about 12 years, maybe 15 years younger, is the fact that ITV2 has solely been playing Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz for the past 10 years. You're right, yeah. (laughs) And those are the two films, which are obviously not as experimental, but at the same time, which in terms of like sheer familiarity and like core Hot this is Fuzz, a thing. Hot Fuzz is one of the most quotably funny films ever yeah. made. Oh, incredible. So I mean, funny. You, just, you can literally just watch it over and over again. And it's all that stuff that people forget, you know, Olivia Coleman and all that, you know, like a bit of girl on girl. Ah! You know, the, all those gags are just genius. Yeah. That's with the bit when he turns up on the... Morning. My, my uh, wife took our son, who loves uh, Hot Fuzz, to the you know the village where the going to, and he was literally standing there going, "Oh my god, it's Hot Fuzz!" Yeah. And so great, literally um, every you must have done the Wales Comedy Festival. Yes. Everywhere you walk into has a different photo of the fact it was filmed in there, and it was filmed in there, and yeah. it was filmed in there. But it's genius. It's, it's absolutely genius. And of course, if if as with my son, you see it 
and then you see Wicker Man, you go, oh my God, yeah. it's Wicker Man, that's where it comes from. But, you know, it's, yeah. No, Billy I'd... Whitelaw. Well, there's a lovely thing, actually, which is with, um, I forget his name now, the guy who played Wittgenstein, Derek Jarman's Wittgenstein, uh, Carl... Uh, um, he's he's in it and he he plays the uh, he he plays the police officer right and yeah. what I love is to me his most famous role is a philosopher who talked about language being as clear as a pane of glass and ever since then his predominant output is playing people with strangulated voices that make no sense he, he's gonna, he's going to be in Beckett's Endgame the one they're doing with um, Daniel Radcliffe does he play the um, the granddad in Mum. I think he may well him. do. Yes, Carl. Uh, I can't. I don't know why I can't remember his name. But a wonderful actor. Sure. He's incredible. And, he, and he's um, yeah, hot fuzz. You're right. I, I must. I've watched that just because it's on, yeah. and I'm quite happy just, to just go. Yeah, that's fine. Funny Edward and Woodward, good. Billy Whitelaw, genius, isn't it? Adam you know? Buxton. Go, go back to London. You know, it's just <laughs> it, yeah, it's just genius. And you could recite the whole movie like Rocky. Incidentally, you've just demonstrated something which is, I, I was asked some time ago many years ago now, they said, um, would you like to be on Celebrity Mastermind? And I said, I would rather gnaw my own hand off <laughs> because I, one of the things that I, I, I said, I'm, I'm either 56 or 57. I was born in 63. I, can't, I actually can't remember which of the, I mean, my birthday's in July. I can figure it out, but I can't quite remember which one I am, is uh, on the spot, I'm, I, I, my recall is gone. My recall is really gone. I was, I was on air and I forgot the word for uh, airport. And I said, I'm going to the aeroplane station <laughs> because I, I, I literally couldn't remember it. And if somebody, if I ever went on Celebrity Mastermind, I'd go, my specialist subject is The Exorcist. They go, who wrote it? And I go, this is very relatable content for me as a sleep deprived mother. Oh, hey. I don't think that would happen if you did it. Because I think it's the same with stand-up. Because I, the only one I've ever done, I, I turned down Celebrity Mastermind because when I was nine, I had to do a school quiz and I forgot everything. Oh, and I yeah, that, would be me. that would be me. But then when I did, um, I did Pointless Celebrities and, and trounced John Cooper Clark, just like to so say, I have a piece of Perspex at home, kept it a secret for two years. He kept a secret for two years yeah, and it was so frustrating. Knew, he said, I know that you can't have won because I'd have found it by now. And then he was watching it. I was out in Canada and apparently just went, oh my God, oh my God. And he was watching it with my dad. And they went, Dad won. But my recall, just went everything worked and that's the thing I find before stand up for an hour before a show if I'm trying to have a conversation my brain's like going no don't use any of these neural connections now you have to remember (laughs) all manner of strange tangents and go off on one for two and a half hours and then I can do that and after people go you've got an amazing memory and I go yeah and it's gone again once in my life I took Ritalin on a night out and I felt like Barack Obama I was like (laughs) my brain is so good I can say anything I want I know exactly what's happening well yeah. Linda and I now have this thing that we've we've made a pact with each other because we we, we have conversations we go do you remember that film with that guy which you know the guy the one we know <laughs> you know no no not that with the other one that we know so we've now had this pact which is that we won't google it that we will if we're in a four-hour car journey we will we will make our brains remember like what you just said i'll be like i'll you know i'll be going across the cornish border and go i know what it was and because I do think it is like it's an exercise your brain thing, what's happened is I've, 
I, I know that there's a possibility of Googling something and somewhere my brain has learned that. And so, I ha- you know, we've had to actually stop ourselves doing it because you forget the, the stupidest things. But don't you have, because I find, like I learned left and right because of horror movie books. When I was eight, I was very late on learning left to right, but I bought a horror movie book, Alan Frank's book on horror movies. Yeah. And I knew that on the left was Bela Lugosi and on the right was Boris Karloff. That's how I learned left from right. So and then, then every time I you watch go films, somewhere. I go, how do I even know that person's name? I mean, a strange one, yeah. a, a very good actor, but nevertheless, I was walking up to an older shop, West End Arts Centre, wonderful place. Used to be run by my friend Barney. And uh, his name's Barney Jeevons. Now I've known Barney for 22 years. And suddenly I noticed he was walking in front of me just a little bit. Around. I thought, isn't it funny? Barney is very much the shape of Colin Jeevons. Now I know most people would not immediately Colin Jeevons, who is uh, was, was Lestrade in the Sherlock Holmes TV version of Sherlock Holmes, wonderful actor, pops up in a lot of different things. Popped up the other day in uh, I can't remember which which movie. Oh, Frankenstein created woman. He's in in things like that. Great Dickensian actor. And I thought, first of all, my mind has gone. Oh, I'm just thinking of Colin Jeevons, which most people don't spend mm. a lot of time. And then I went up to Barney and I went, Barney, this is going to sound a bit weird. Are you related to Colin Jeevons? He went, yeah, he's my dad. <laughs> and it's like, but all of those things that are stuck in my head from the excitement. And when I sit watching Talking Pictures TV and my dad and me are going, who's that, 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 that? And eventually it will turn it out will that come. I, for some reason, remember the guy who played the second Cyberman in Tomb of the Cyberman <laughs> because when I was reading Doc 2 Weekly, they had all of that recall. And it's, and it's, you know, where Brian Cox can remember muons, gluons, up quarks, down quarks, charm quarks and strange quarks and the nature of the universe. I can remember, you know, various yeah. people who didn't ever have as big a career as, say, you know. Well, I, I know to... who I'd rather spend time <laughs> with. I have to tell you, one of the, pr- the proudest moments of my life, which just, just happened recently, was I made the Exorcist documentary, The Fear of God, 21 years ago. And um, and the BBC agreed to put it back on iPlayer for Halloween. Huh. And we, we there's a longer version of it than was ever seen before as a festival version. Because when we were making it, we you know we did everybody. We literally did everybody because it was the last moment that everyone was still with us. So it, you know it's not just Mercedes McCambridge and Dick Smith, but it's you know Jason Miller and I mean, everyone. And uh, so that we had a longer version, it's closer to an hour and a half. And I got said, look, can you, you know, it's 21 years old and it's a big thing. Could you put it back on? And we, there was a lot of red tape. We got it up. And Brian Cox um, tweeted this thing, which he said, I've just seen it and it's magnificent. And he then went on to, to make a gag, which was, he said, after I finished watching it, the BBC iPlayer algorithm said, since you enjoyed that, why don't you watch current news? And it was just like, <laughs> what? But it was, the, I thought, you know, if somebody as smart as Brian Cox likes that, that must be really good. Oh, and I no, was, that's I, worrying to me because I haven't seen him for a couple of weeks. He's been out in Australia. What have you... Robin, guess what? I believe in Satan now. <laughs> oh, no, this is really going to harm him from the monkey doing, cage. What are we going to do this time? We're just going to do more shamanism. Oh, no. <laughs> I've looked into the chicken's entrails, and I believe next week we should do the Big Bang. <laughs> oh. The... Um, I just want, uh, if you could, uh, I'm a big fan of J- Jeff Dyer's two books, uh, Zona and yeah. then Broadsword, uh, yeah. to Danny yeah. Boy. That, that, and, and in fact, the guy who wrote the, I forget his name now, the guy who wrote the book all about George Romero's Martin for that series of books, I would say, it does a similar thing where it's very much his even more personal journey. If there was one film yeah. that you could do the equivalent, because for those who don't know, That's we've had Jeff Dyer on before, Zona is basically, it's just, it's a description of everything that occurs in the film Tarkovsky's Stalker. Yeah. Uh, with a sense of 
what each character might mean and what their look yeah. suggests. It's a very and it's wonderful. And then Broadsword Danny Boy is a fun one, kind of based around where eagles dare. What film do you think you would like to just go ex- directly into your mind? The the experience of what each image means. Well, it's interesting. I did a, an interview with Jeff when that when Zona came out for the Culture Show. And uh, and I was saying it's almost like, it is almost like a DVD commentary without the film. And in fact, funnily enough, we figure that you can read Zona probably in real time to a to a viewing of the movie. And I and I and I said, you know, you should get somebody to do this. You should get them to put it on a DVD of the mm-hmm. film because actually, actually, you know, it would work really well. I mean, the default setting is always you know the, the stuff that I've always loved, which is things like Exorcist. But to be honest with you, I do think that Doodle and the Blue Cat is the film which if if you just asked me to extempore and and the reason for that is this when i was a, a kid i saw doodle and the blue cat in the cinema and i loved it because it was brilliant and frightening and weird and i've always loved scary and there are really scary things in it and um but very soon afterwards the two of the first records i owned were first it was in woolworths there was a single which was um florence uh, florence it's a lovely morning on the a side and on the b side it was florence's sad song and i'm the king and uh, in which they called him king buster for some reason they just got it wrong and that was like 50 or 49p and but there was also a soundtrack album which was a pound or 99p and we couldn't Mum said, no, no, get the single, you know, that's fine. And I was desperate for the soundtrack album. So some weeks later, I went back and I bought the soundtrack album, which was substantively the whole soundtrack of the film. I know many people have now got these kicking around in their lofts, but it's it's two sides of an LP, and the film isn't very long. There are some ellipses in it. There are some cuts when you see... But I played that record over and over, like a Goon Show album. You know, if you had a spoken word album or people had Monty Python albums, you learnt them like songs. You could talk along to them. I could do you the whole of Dougal and the Blue Cat from the beginning to the end because I grew up with that record. In fact, when video came out, and bear in mind, I know this sounds crazy, but before video, if you'd seen a film once or twice in the cinema, you you couldn't just watch it again willy-nilly. It's like find out if it's on television or go up to Baker Street on a Wednesday because Short Night of Glass Dolls is showing once as a supporting feature with something else. So when video came, happened and it was finally possible to get a video of Dougal and the Blue Cat... I watched it again, having known the the album and having kind of forgotten the film experience. I'd seen the film in the cinema and I listened to the album hundreds and hundreds of times. And it was so weird seeing the film because it wasn't quite how I remember it. Not least because there are certain cuts, but also because you re- I remember different images from it. And because I, it, more than any other film, probably, I have listened to that film over and over again and so that's the thing that I because it's all in Eric Thompson's voice it's all in the way he tells that story and I mean Fenella Fielding is such a big part of it and you know when I was a, the film critic at Radio 1 back in the 90s back in a previous century when um, my co-presenter was off they said you could have anyone you want to co-present it with and they wanted me to say like Jarvis Cocker or somebody and I said Fenella Fielding and they went what why and I said she's got the best radio voice of anyone Ever. I mean, you know, I, I know Orson Welles said Mercedes McCambridge, but I think Fenella Fielding's voice, you, you know, it's it's a magical thing. And I did a, a couple of film review shows with her and just being in a studio with the headphones on, listening to her talk was it, it, just hypnotic. And then, you know, I, I spoke very briefly at her memorial and I, 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 that voice, there was a... Mu- there was a moment, sorry, I'm being, I'm being tangential. There was a moment when, because I, I obviously inflicted Dougal and the Blue Cat on my kids. 
And there was a point when Fenella Fielding, for some reason, had called me at the house. Um, and and I picked up the phone. It was Fenella Fielding. And I said, Fenella, I hate to ask you to do this, but would you would you do the blue voice for my daughter? Oh. And my daughter, you know, and I passed the phone to my daughter. And Fenella went, blue is beautiful. Yeah. And my... <laughs> It was like this. It was like a real celebrity moment. There was the voice. That was the See, thing. See, that's that she much nicer than the Robert Helpman story, which I'm sure you know from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <gasps> there was still one of my favourite stories. Go on. There's a lot of wonderful stories. Um, when he was going round to uh, Sunday lunch with a friend, and the day before, the friend had taken his children to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Of course, they were terrified of Helpman as the child catcher. Yeah. And uh, he rang him up. He said, "Robert, I, I know it's a bit weird, but um, uh, you're coming round for lunch, and uh, my children were so scared of you, the child catcher. Could you just have a quick word with them over the phone and just..." explain that you're, you're an actor and stuff. He went, of course, that would be absolutely fine. When the children got on the phone, he went, I'm coming to catch you, Jonathan! <laughs> so that is, you know, I love those. But Fenella, yeah, that whole, I mean, the voice in The Prisoner, of course, as well, so so uh, iconic. I know, and it, and it, and it was a it, it was an incredible thing because she she had this kind of almost bird-like frame, but this voice that came out of it was extremely... You know, deep and rich and resonant, and you know, it, yeah, amazing, an amazing, an amazing actor whose career actually probably was only f- fully appreciated after the fact. Mm. You know, when people were, were kind of looking at everything that she had done, he was like, "Really? Wow! It's astonishing!" You know, a, re- yeah, a really astonishing performer. I think that's a Dougal and the Blue Cat is because I don't know the difference between, for instance, the 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 screenplay as in its its, its original version French and one, the yeah. version that that Eric Thompson did because that's always I mean that's how I got introduced to Eisenstein. I, th- I don't think it's in that. I think it's in one of the short ones where there's a moment where suddenly Dougal goes, "I bet this never happened to Sergei Eisenstein," <laughs> and another bit where he goes, "I am a camera," and and that I, I think that's a good example of something which basically says. Um, People are smarter than you think. And the oh, fact completely. that something like the Magic Roundabout is now, I wonder how many were, well, our audience won't get that. As opposed to just letting Eric Thompson yeah. go, he's just going to pedal, you know, they had with a pedaling thing to watch him there and then put together something which is yeah. totally engaging for children and has something very wonderful in it for, for adults as well. No, I mean, it, it is unbelievable. And you, exactly, I mean, those jokes, they're smart and erudite and they're not frightened of making those gags. And I think you're absolutely right about there is now a thing about, well, you know, will the audience get it? Let them find out. Let let somebody hear that name and go. Who who's he saying? Who is it? I'm just I'm just going check that out because it's actually, never been easier to as well. That's the weird thing. It's never been easier to find out everything. And now they go. Whoa, well, people won't yes. know that. Do you have a favourite film tie-in novel? I was thinking, in fact, with Brian Cox a while ago, we were in a shop and we found the, for instance, the Alien cartoon version, which for many oh, well. of us, because Brian and me, surprisingly, are the same age, despite the disparity in face. And uh, that is, you know, that, that was a gateway. And then also there are certain, Invasion of the Body Snatchers for me was like the novelisation of, of the, of the Corfman yeah. movie. I have a copy of the Hawk the Slayer film tie-in, which goes for up to £70 wow. now. Wow. Yeah, there's some of the. I really want a copy of the Martin film tie-in, the one from George Romero. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. not got that. But do you do you have well, one which you? There's, okay, there's two. There is apparently a novel of Jeremy which I have never seen. I've read that it exists, and I've never seen a copy of it. And in fact, recently I got asked if I would do a commentary track for Jeremy um, to go to. I had to go to America to do it, but it's one of my favourite films. Um, 
And I'm kind of tempted to say, I'll do it if you can find me a copy of the novelization. I remember buying a novelization of The Brood and loving it because it had clearly never been proofread. I mean, it wasn't just, it was like literally there was words. It was like, it's like, it's like a President Trump speech. It was like word salad spewn out over pages that every now and then had identifiable nouns and verbs in, in the correct order. But actually, the the most significant novelization, and of course it's never thought of as a novelization, is Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 because it was written at the same time that the film was being done. It's not that the film isn't based on the novel. The novel and the film are both based on the Sentinel. And I remember seeing 2001 thinking, I don't get it, I don't get it, what's happening, I don't get it, what's happening? Then you read the book, oh, right, fine. Now that's, thank you very much. I kind of preferred it when I didn't get it, but it's like at least in the book he does go, and then this happened because that other thing happened, and then these things who were this did this, and it went fine. Okay, now it makes sense because you know the whole the thing with the film is you get to doesn't matter how many times you watch that film, you get to the Stargate, you go, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, say, I took my, sorry. Oh no, I was just going to say it's not a film serialization, but I read the Testaments uh, recently, and. I felt like as a novel on its own, I, I, I don't know whether I would have loved it in the same way, but having watched all three seasons of The Handmaid's Tale and obviously read The Handmaid's yeah. Tale, it was such a joy to be like, there's more of these characters. I enjoyed it was the Testament. Same. Yeah, I know a great. lot of people have been a bit, some some Atwood fans and stuff have been a bit, uh, and there's all that. Go, Should the book, oh, fuck off, who cares? Well, the other so, thing is, no, I, I think it. it's great. Give, give it us something. more time with the and characters. And Bernadine never more they both deserved it. I would love to read the novel of The Mad Monkey, which is called The Dream of the Mad Monkey, but it's in French, and it's as far as I know, it's never been translated. Could you get someone to live translate it for you? That would be nice. Well, you could probably put it into Google Translate, <laughs> which would take all the majesty out of it. But as far as I know, I mean, I remember interviewing Traber about it, saying that what, the book, he went, yeah, it's great. But I went, could you give it to a member of a French member of NATO who then does it as their speech, and then you sit in there secretly as an ambassador and listen <laughs> to reading it, being it back translated? To, yeah. yeah. Good free you know, I, 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 would, that would be, I, I would just love to read the book because the film looks like it's taken straight from the page pages of the book but I don't know because I can't read the book because it's in French and I don't even think that's what you should be learning French and oh, uh, yeah, no, no, no. no no I had a bad time with the with I failed my French O level three times and oh, I got God. it on the fourth time yeah no sorry it's okay Just, I've got over it it was a long, <laughs> it was a long time ago it really was and I finally because back then if you wanted to do an English degree you had to have a language degree I don't know whether that a language, no, a language O level English. oh fine fine well I basically I couldn't get into Manchester University to do English if I didn't have a language O level and I had started learning Spanish and I was disastrous at it. And then I, French was the, was the other one that you're meant to learn. And I was, t- I mean, I've got no capacity for language at all. I mean, it's really embarrassingly terrible. It's, I, I hate the fact that I can only speak one language because nowadays, you know, the whole of the rest of the world appears to be able to speak two or three languages. And it's a very old school British horrible thing that I don't you know oh, we speak British so you know it's all fine you know yeah. um, uh, and I that really bothers me but I, I really struggled with French and I failed the French level three times and I got it on my fourth time I scraped to C I'm and so the sorry. reason I scraped to C was because um, the, the, the the vicar in my local church his wife was French and she had tutored me you know privately for the last sort of three months before I f- took it for the fourth time and there was one phrase that I remembered was un chute de neige which meant a fall of snow and it came up in the thing when you have to write what you you know what you see and it was a fall of snow and there we are 
That's how they got me through, and that got me to Manchester University, and then everything else followed. So I have, I have, you know, that to thank. It's like my grandma used to always tell the story of how she only revised one of the twenty poems she was supposed to know for her French A level oral, and that was the one that came. Wow! And she couldn't believe it, but she and she passed. You see, that's an air punching moment. But I think the fact that I have a French O level. Is, is an indication of the failure of the education system because I can't speak for... I've got an economics A-level and I literally don't know the first thing about economics at all. It was just I was doing history and English and you needed another subject and I'd never been very good. My O-levels weren't very good. And in fact, I got rejected from Manchester many times. I finally got in through clearing a year later. Um, but it, it, the whole thing with economics was, well, you're starting from scratch. So although your O-levels are very bad, if you do economics... It's You'll new. be starting from scratch. It's like a level playing field, which is like saying, yeah, if you start astrophysics from scratch, you'll be as good as everybody else because everybody else knows nothing. You're, yeah, but I can't do astrophysics. But there are a lot of professional economists who really don't have a clue, so you're doing great. You're still yeah, at, the, at the end of our course, we were literally told by our, our, by our economics teacher, incidentally, everything I've told you has subsequently been disproved. Enjoy the exam. Well, you could have done philosophy. Uh, so anyway, thanks very much for listening. We've easily run out of time. Uh, thank you very much to Mark Kermode for coming on this. Um, and uh, Mark's new book, uh, How Does it feel? How it Feels. I did say it right, didn't I? How Does It Feel? Oh, God, sorry. I, th- I thought cause the, the, I, I did say Kermode, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, you did. Yeah, you said oh, that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, then, you went, then you went, uh, yeah. you had one of those senior yeah. moments and I leapt in and went, how does oh, no, it feel? it was because my brain was actually going, oh, I hope I haven't fucked that bit up. Um, we had a conversation before this started about brought up the Kermode, fucking yeah. French show level <laughs> every single time. Do you remember when Richard Dawkins on? He brought up domestic science and his cake was a fucking disaster and he failed. <laughs> and he's still very, I won't eat a Victoria sponge. It makes me angry. Um, so, yeah, this out feels, which is, I, I think, how does how it feel? How does it feel? You know, it's because I think... I know, I think of these barrels fucking carpets now, that's why. Okay, fine. He's answering the question for you. Which I think is, I'm sure they did on Cracker Jack, and Cracker Jack producer, the the, the audience... Okay, I'm going to end this because I feel Because I thought there was going to be a Slade sing-along, and there's not, there's a kind of a sad song. But anyway, so uh, (laughs) that is available in shops now, and you can go uh, listen to Mark's new podcast, and also on Scala Radio. Josie Long is touring uh, around the UK. uh, My show Tender, please, please come. Go go and Uh, see uh, Tender. Uh, My book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is available on Audible now with various different changes because I found out certain things that were in it that I hadn't realised I'd allowed the editor to get away. So I, in fact, I cross out a line on page 238 when I sign the book now. So if you do want to buy a book <laughs> off me, I will be crossing out a line on page 238. And uh, C Shambles that I'm doing with Josie is at the Albert Hall. Bye-bye. Bye, thanks. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you're unable to support us, on Patreon, uh, you can support the podcast by rating and reviewing it five stars on Apple Podcasts, spreading the word, sharing it on social media, getting the word out there for the podcast is always good and grand. As Robin mentioned at the end there, his book is available now. All of Mark's books are available now, including his latest. Check out uh, your favourite online book shopping destination or better yet go to your local independent bookshop and pick up a copy Josie is on tour now check out her website for details cosmicshambles.com for everything else and as with every week all the books that have been discussed in this episode are listed on cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles just find the relevant episode and the reading lists are there and obviously for this week as well there is a very long list of all of the films that Robin Josie and Mark mentioned so you can check out as many of those as you wish 
back next week with a new episode. Until then, have a great week and bye. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. For more podcasts, live events, documentaries, and lots of other things uh, to uh, feed your mind or give your mind indigestion, sometimes make your mind physically sick, then go to cosmicshambles.com.